What's going on, guys? It is episode two of the Chris Williams podcast. Sorry it took a couple of weeks to get the second episode out. Um, it was a, it's been a weird couple of weeks. We're, a lot of traveling. I was in Las Vegas for a week, and then last week was one of the craziest weeks. Well, the last like week from like now we're recording this on Wednesday night, the 18th of March. If, if you go back a week ago, we're all in Sprint Center, Iowa State um, Big 12 tournament, and just all hell's breaking loose with this coronavirus stuff. And we all get sent home and bada boom. Uh, now we're all, you know, kind of going through this together. And I'm, I'm really excited to bring this week's guest on because he's one of my best friends. He's one, and I'm, I want to give him too big of a head, but one of the smartest human beings I know. We have a lot in common, but he is, um, his name is Matt Erdman. He, I'm going to let you like break down exactly who you are and what you do. But like this week's podcast, like everything that's going on is your wheelhouse. Yeah, I think so. I mean, this is going to be a lot of fun. You and I have had a lot of late night conversations about uh, some of these topics. Yeah. And this will be the first time we've done it with a microphone. I'm always badgering you about this stuff. You are. You are. And I'm always trying to uh, counter some of your crazy thoughts that you have about various things. Matt does you, not believe in aliens. I do not. I do not follow the <laughs> underground Denver airport conspiracy that Chris is all over. So I try to I try to keep him in check and just say that I'm a little bit older, wiser version of Chris. That's true. How old are you? 43. 43. Okay. And I'm 35. So... You got a few years on me. I do. So you you stick with me. You'll, you'll go far in life. <laughs> Matt and I. Um, okay, give tell us your education, your background, all that, your your credentials for talking about this topic, which is the the coronavirus and just local implications. And then we're going to talk about a hobby of ours that we we hammer out all the time, and that's investing it's stocks all that stuff. And that is on the top of a lot of people's minds right now is everybody's 401ks are tanking. And we're not going to give you guys advice, but we're going to kind of just, so Matt rode down to the George Strait concert with me a few weeks ago. And we'll talk stocks for like four hours at a time. We're basically just going to have one of those conversations with you guys today, but give us your background. Sure. So the, the condensed version, uh, I'm a farm kid from Winterset, Iowa, grew up on a farm. So have an ag background, uh, went to Iowa State and got a bachelor's degree in microbiology and then loved college so much that I just kept going. Went to vet school, mm-hmm. uh, got a DVM. And then uh, at the same time I was in vet school, I did a PhD in microbiology. So education wise, I've been working with infectious diseases basically since I was about 19 years old. Like, was there a point where you're like, man, I'm really into this infectious disease thing? I think so. You know, when you go to Iowa State as a pre-vet student, a lot of times they throw you into the animal science major, kind of undecided. And I had to take a microbiology course. I think it was 201 uh, with Dr. Chuck Thone uh, as a freshman. And I took that course. I didn't really know about microbiology and diseases and bacteria and viruses. And I just loved it. Yeah. It was one of those courses where, have you ever had those courses where, you know, you get just super great grades, but you don't feel like you worked very hard. Yeah. You were just so interested in it. And so... Like, that's like a B, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> B, B plus, maybe. <laughs> um, so, I switched, switched my major, 
and uh, became a microbiology major. And then when I got accepted to vet school, I actually thought, well, maybe I don't want to be a vet anymore. Maybe I just want to go on to grad school in microbiology and do research. But I was working for um, a DVM PhD at the time. And he said, nope, you know, Matt, you should really go both to vet school and you should get a PhD in microbiology at the same time. And you'll open up all sorts of doors. And uh, in retrospect, he was right. So I went to vet school at Iowa State, graduated, did a PhD at the same time, graduated a year after vet school, uh, went to the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta and worked in Atlanta for a while. Um, I didn't even know that. I had no idea. Yeah, it was fun. You know, wow. it, that was a good experience for me for lots of reasons. One, I was a, a small farm kid going to Atlanta and experiencing all that that had to do and, and being in yeah. that culture was a really good experience for me. But then also, you know, having that experience at CDC, some of the brightest scientists all over the world. I mean, those institutions attract people from all over the globe to come do research in places like that. And that was really cool uh, to do that. So I spent some time there and then I came back to Iowa and did a postdoc appointment on virology. Uh, I was involved in starting a, a vaccine company. And then I went on and I was director of a diagnostic laboratory. And now I'm currently uh, back in the vaccine world. So, yeah, there you go. You guys see why, Matt's this is like made for you. We were, we, we went to that George Strait concert. It was July, or not July, January. I, it was the same day uh, for my Iowa State fans who are listening um, when the clones played at Auburn. And we, we were talking about COVID-19 and the coronavirus. And I was asking you, like, I'm just like, what is, what is this? Like, and, okay, what I want to know is, like, from, we, we view this very differently. I'm reading headlines. Right. Like, I don't really understand it. But I, f I actually feel like I kind of do now as far as the social distancing right. and all that stuff. But, like, you look at it at a totally different level. What is different now, like, from when we were driving down there and it was just starting to, you know, make headlines compared to now when we're, I mean, really, if we're not all locked down in a week, right? I mean, we don't know. We don't know what, how that's going to go, but it, it seems like that's the way we're going. Right. What's changed? Yeah. If I go back to that conversation that we had then, um, and I think we were sitting at an establishment watching the Iowa uh, State game. Kelly's right? down there. We were sitting at Kelly's. Yep. And, um, you know, I think you were asking me about my, pers my perspective on it. And I probably told you, that I wasn't sure it was that big a deal mm -hmm. at the time. And I think, you know, as someone who works in the world of infectious diseases, uh, you can sometimes maybe become a little bit numb to, you know, this happens, right? Yeah. We, we know this is going to happen. We, we expect that there are going to be outbreaks. It's the world we live in. And so at the time it's like, okay, well, here's another one. You know, it's a coronavirus. It's like MERS and SARS. We've dealt with that before. Can you explain that to it? Because I didn't know that until about two weeks ago, that there's multiple coronaviruses. There are. So coronavirus is a family of viruses. And within that family, there are lots of different species, if you will. Okay. And so there are, I think, six or seven human coronaviruses going back through time. Some of them called, cause very mild symptoms uh, MERS and SARS, people are probably more aware of from recent mm -hmm. headlines, but they're in animals, you know, um, for our, our pig producers that might be listening, yeah. you know, uh, porcine epidemic diarrhea virus, PEDV is a coronavirus, uh, Delta coronavirus infect pigs, um, infectious bronchitis, that's a coronavirus that infects poultry or chickens, uh, dogs and cats can be in, impacted by coronavirus. So 
So the term coronavirus is really broad. It's a really, it's a big umbrella. And so it's not as specific as, you know, the language we would use. So COVID-19 is the term that people have come kind of used to, and that's just the name of the disease. The actual virus is called severe acute respiratory coronavirus 2, SARS-CoV-2, is the actual name of the virus. Mm. The virus isn't called COVID-19. That's the name of the disease. Okay. So then going back to your original question, what changed? So, you know, you and I probably talked weekly from, from that point in Kansas City up until, you know, today. And I think, you know, my stance changed a little bit. And there are various reasons. I think as a scientist and, and really just, I, I would say it's not unique to a scientist. Anyone who does critical thinking and absorbs information, yeah. your stance can evolve, right? Yeah. Your position can evolve. And over the past few weeks, we've seen uh, scientific data coming out of China and coming out of Europe, you know, actual numbers about mortality and, and morbidity. So yeah. you know, death loss and things. And then some, and some data about the virus itself and, and some genetics, which we can talk about later if you want. And so I'm looking at that stuff, not the headlines, you know, um, I'm not here to attack the media. You know, I don't have those strong feelings, but in reality, there is sometimes some central sensationalizing that happens. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I don't get my information from social media or the media. I'm looking at peer reviewed scientific publications and the data started to come out. Experts like Dr. Fauci and, and people from the CDC that I respect started going on the record with information that maybe they've only seen, you know, that maybe the rest of us don't have access to. And, and they were raising the alarm a little bit. And so for me, that's where it started to switch. Mm -hmm. And I started to think, okay, you know, obviously I never said, let's not take this serious because I always thought it was serious. Uh, now some of the extreme, um, I think precautions that are being taken, um, you know, I would stand behind and I think they make sense. You were also the first person that ever, um, that I ever heard, you didn't say flatten the curve, but you alluded to it. Yeah. Like in the sense of like, if, if, you know, X amount of million people get this or whatever. Right. You want it to happen over a year and not two months. Right. And I think one of the questions that you would text me one night is, you know, what's the purpose of what's going on right now in society? And, and I, I agree. I probably said maybe before simultaneously to the concept of flattening the curve, kind of hitting the mainstream, mm -hmm. that, that that was the intent, right? You have a, a naive population, an immunologically naive population, which means they don't have antibodies to the virus. There's not a vaccine. So there's no really underlying immunity out there. And so a virus that is both capable of spreading and causing illness has the potential to spread like wildfire. And when that happens, you get back to, okay, the immediate hit to the healthcare system, um, yeah. the productivity, people's ability to keep working, things like that, taking a major hit right out. So the flatten the curve. And again, I think most people uh, have become familiar with that phrase recently, but the purpose is to draw the, um, the height of that curve and the infections out over a longer period of time so that you don't have this sudden rush on hospitals all at once. And maybe also the longer you draw it out, the faster you, maybe you get to a therapy or a vaccine that can, that can help down the road. Okay. A couple of um, things that I, I don't think many people are saying it now, 
because I think humans are now like realities hit because we're having to change our lives. Right. What do you say is a scientist to the guy who goes, Oh, well the flu kills, you know, 20,000 people a year or whatever the number is. Right. What do you, what do you say to that guy? That's podcasts, podcast safe. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a tough one for me. So you and I have some talks offline that are just about social media, right? Yeah. Independent of this topic Yeah. and the pros and cons of social media. And I have some strong opinions of that. And, and, you know, you spent a lot of your life on social media and I spent a lot of my life avoiding social media. Yeah. You're like reading actual papers and stuff. Right. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> I still, you know, have people I follow on Twitter and so forth, but I'm not, you know, perpetuating things on, on Twitter and Facebook and things. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was interesting because, you know, I'm looking at it from the science side, but yeah, I would check in, what are people saying on Facebook? And, and immediately you started seeing just what you're describing, right? Um, there's some political connection to this virus or, you know, it's, it's man-made. Um, you know, there, the comparisons to influenza were happening and, and there was all sorts of memes going around about the death loss and so forth. Yeah, that, yeah. And people get fixated on, on death. And the reality is, is death is not always the end all be all. You know, you, you can make a population of people very, very sick and have the inability to work and not necessarily kill them all. Right. Yeah. And there are pathogens that can do that, that they won't kill you, but man, you won't do anything for a month. And so that can be just as significant. But I think the biggest mistake that maybe those people were making is, you know, we were on like day five of U.S. infections and people were like, oh, five people in the U.S. have died, you yeah. know, compared to the thousands and so forth, yeah, the flu. Yeah, it's yeah. like, we just started, you know, and it's easy to say that now. So what all the experts say, though, that we're closer to the beginning than the end. Though. I you, think so. Yeah. I think so. I mean, there is starting to be some data coming out of Europe and Asia that, that maybe things are, are plateauing. But you have to understand that anytime you see data um, about numbers, it's all based on the underlying testing. Okay. And so in the U.S., I think everyone knows that testing uh, has been somewhat limited. And so maybe the cases are higher. Sometimes in countries, and this sometimes happens with animal diseases, once you get to a certain percentage of the population that's positive, you may actually run less tests. You know, it's, it's more like, okay, well, you have the clinical signs. We're almost just going to assume you have it. Mm -hmm. We don't have to keep testing every single person. And again, I, you know, I should back up that while I may have all those credentials in infectious disease, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a medical doctor and, yeah, and yeah. I'm, I'm not working on coronavirus, you know, yeah. so, so the information I have is, is publicly available from other scientific sources. Okay. The most fascinating, we can kind of, we don't have to necessarily talk about the COVID-19 right now, but I, I was, I was telling you, um, that I, I'm, I'm interested in this because like, I don't really understand where these things come from. Right. And you've explained to me, it's kind of, it's, it's evolution. Mm -hmm. What, what does that mean? Like right. what, like, like, so these little like pieces of virus are just growing. Like what, like where, like, where do you guys find this stuff? 
Can I like just totally geek out right yeah, now? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I brought you on here. So it's fascinating. So this is kind of my world. So you know, I, I live kind of in the world of genetics of of these organisms, of viruses and bacteria. You have a lot of microscopes. Um. Yeah, not really anymore. You know, mic- oh. microscopes is really uh, <laughs> so twenty years ago. Microscopes is pretty old technology. More like you know DNA sequencers and and computer analysis of genes and things like that. Man. Um, but I've worked, I've, you know, my PhD was kind of more focused on bacterial diseases, you know, things like salmonella and my postdoc was more focused on virology. Uh, so I've been kind of on both sides of the aisle and, you know, there's kind of a comment or maybe a joke for those of us that work in the infectious disease world that, you know, we're always going to have job security because the next outbreak or the next pathogen or the next problem is typically right around the corner. And we're always kind of trying to play catch up, whether it's okay, what's that next emerging disease going to be? How do we get a vaccine quickly for that emerging disease? Um, You know, with, with bacteria, it's antibiotic resistance. Probably a lot of people have heard about antibiotic resistance where the bacteria are becoming resistant. I hear about that all the time because we just, humans now have taken so many antibiotics that maybe they're not going to, remember that Mars show I told you about? Yeah. The great story. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, you should. But the Mars is a great show. It, yeah, it's a show. National Geographic put it out, and it's it's basically like a hypothetical on if humans inhabited Mars, and what happens in the show. I don't even know if you got to this episode. Did you watch them all? I haven't got through all of them. Okay, so they start drilling. Like the, there's the government, like NASA's there. And then this private company got there. Right. And the private company starts drilling and the guys and gals with NASA are like, that's a terrible idea. Well, they hit like, they found water. Like they basically found like ice or whatever. And what happened was when like that ice had been frozen for, I don't know, however many million years or whatever, billion years, maybe. Yep. And when that water melted for the first time, like it, if you were exposed to it, like it gave you all of these, um, basically these, you know, virus, like sure. bacteria or whatever yep. was in this water that when they, they're on Mars and they couldn't defeat the virus because they had all their like fancy antibiotics and all they needed was penicillin to beat it. Yeah. It's a great story. I think. I think there's an episode of X Files. It's like that, and <laughs> really, yeah, they're, they're you know, this some, is your life. Some ice core <laughs> up somewhere, and they release all these ancient organisms that are really weird. And and you and I have had this conversation. I don't know how someone with your mindset has not watched X Files because I <laughs> I was too young. Like I think that's all. It was. I watched it in syndication. I think in college, really? just in reruns. Yeah. Uh, okay. Seriously, some of the the crazy stuff they cook up is right up <laughs> right up your alley. <laughs> It's like the Denver airport. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Um, but that's, that's the so gist of the antibiotic resistance, right? Yeah. Antibiotic resistance is a problem um, that's multifactorial that, you know, it, we could do a whole podcast on that and we, we probably shouldn't right now, but um, there are emerging problems like that, that microbiologists, that's why I say, you know, we're always have another challenge and, you know, to geek out a little bit on this COVID situation, um, so when I mentioned something to you about evolution, you know, these microbes, you know, they're, they're reproducing themselves in a matter of minutes, right? You know, E. coli has a, a re- 
reproduction time of like 20 minutes or something. You know, whereas humans, it takes generations of, of time for traits maybe to pass on. And so small changes in the genome can be very impactful and evolution can happen very quickly. And coronaviruses um, are, they're an RNA virus instead of DNA. So without getting into the details, just know that they use RNA instead of DNA for their genetic material and RNA is more prone to errors and errors slash mutations are really the fuel for evolution, right? Mm -hmm. Because when an error happens or a mutation happens in that one virus and whatever that changes gives that virus a competitive edge for whatever reason, then all of a sudden that, that population can flourish. And, and so Animals. So this one's the, kicking ass right now. Right. So there was a paper that just came out, I think this week. It was in Nature, uh, which is a high, highly respected publication, scientific publication. Um, and I, man, I'm blanking on who the first author was, but I know one of the authors was Ian Lipkin. And for if anyone out there happens to be in the infectious disease world, I'm sure you've heard of Ian Lipkin. I'm a big Ian Lipkin. Yeah, I know. I'm sure. Read him every day. You have a, that poster of him in your basement. <laughs> He's got that new podcast, right? Right, right. <laughs> um, and so they've sequenced the the um, this virus, the SARS coronavirus two that causes COVID nineteen, and they found some interesting changes. They've found that there's um, probably the most significant is there's a protein on the surface of the virus um, that it used to that it uses to bind the cells. And a mutation happened, and some amino acids on that protein changed. And the th current theory is that those changes made that virus now able to jump Man. from animals to humans. So that's what happened here, though. It, it is. I mean, the from what I've read, the theory is this. I mean, I think most people have heard of bats. That bats have been associated. Bats are um, a bad deal, right? Well, bats they do, carry a lot of stuff. Bats do carry a lot of coronaviruses. Yeah. Um, there's an also another animal, um, pagolins. I think yeah, I read called. about that. So they're like little anteater things. Yeah. Um, they've also... Now, how in the world would an anteater, or whatever it is, give a disease to a human? Well, I don't know a lot about those animals, um, yeah. but I think that, you know, there are places do where... we eat them? I'm not sure we do. Maybe someone does. Uh, yeah, that's what I mean. Right. I'm not sure there's many animals on the world, on the planet, that somebody doesn't eat. Right. That's I mean, if point. you live in a rainforest, maybe, or, yeah. you know, I mean, I think sometimes we go a little heavy on pointing the finger at other cultures and their ways. Um, you know, there have been disease outbreaks in the United States that had nothing to do with other countries, but maybe we're more based on things we do. So, um, but anyway, I think, you know, just to finish geeking out the, the genetic changes in this virus seemed to have been a perfect storm and allowed it to um, potentially infect a human. And at some point, whether it was prior or after the first human became infected, it would be able to be um, community um, passed from one person to another. And that really is the genesis of, a, of an outbreak. Okay, so you're a veterinarian. I am. I, I read that we had our first dog get tested positive with this recently who's our us well, <laughs> you know what i mean the, the, uh, hong kong hong kong yeah i think if you go out there um 
you can find public reports that there was a Hong a dog in Hong Kong that tested positive for for the virus. Um, but that was like the first one of like thousands that got tested, right? And it, as far as I know, it's the only one. Okay. Um, I think I don't even think that the dog had any signs that we would maybe associate with coronavirus. Um, that doesn't mean it was the healthiest dog. I think it was an older dog, um, but they were able to detect the um, the virus in that dog by diagnostics. Um, as far as um, you know, so the next question I think is, what about pets? You know, do do, yeah. do we worry about pets? Um, and I would, I guess, follow up like, like, do you have to worry about pets? And then translating, like, let's let's just say a dog gets it. That dog in Hong Kong, right? Could that dog then give it to a human? Right. So you know, again, I kind of lean towards um, the American Veterinary Medical Association (AVMA). Yeah, um, is trying to keep veterinarians up to speed on this. And as of right now, there's no indication um, that this disease impacts dogs or pets. And yes, I know that there's that one case in Hong Kong, but, you know, that one case isn't isn't really, you know, enough to go on. Um, As far as I know, there's no evidence that it impacts pets. Um, The AVMA does suggest that if you're positive for the disease, um, you yourself, that you might want to limit contact with your pet just like you would anybody else, but that's just an abundance of caution. Um, there's no evidence that it infects dogs. I know that there's, there's information that a lot of have been tested and they've tested negative. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I don't think it's a big concern. You know, if, if anyone were to have any specific questions, I think they could always talk to their veterinarian. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think that's all I got on, on that specific topic because we wanted to transition into another one of our hobbies. Now, I want to say one more thing about, uh, yeah. I just want to geek out one more time yeah, on do, this. Do whatever fast. you want. What, what are we missing? Going back to the social media deal. Yeah, yeah. Um, the paper that I referenced that came out in Nature Magazine, um, actually jotted down the title, the, the Proximal Origin of SARS Coronavirus 2 was the title of that paper. It actually tried to address the rumor running around that maybe it was man-made. And there's genetic ways you can try to answer that question. And they were able to basically show that that's not the case. This virus was not made in a laboratory. It, it emerged, you know, as a lot of merge, um, viruses do from, from nature. Um, so I've read about this. Yeah. Shocking, right? Is it, from what I understand, and then Rogan had that guy on too, and he kind of backed this up as well. Yeah, I haven't listened to Joe's, yeah, Joe's podcast. You need to check it out. It you would find it fascinating. Great. That basically, like, yes, man can make a virus. And like that's we've all known that forever. But when nature makes it, it's a hell of a lot more difficult to stop. Like, because he this is that accurate? Like I think that's true. I mean, you know, there's a lot of things I think we still don't know about genetics. You know, we can maybe change the What are you guys you know doing about. all day? Yeah, I mean, we're just hanging out, right? <laughs> Surfing Facebook all day, I think, looking for memes. Um, no, but I, it does remind me, one of my favorite books of all time, if anyone is interested in that topic, that kind of man-made pathogen. I don't think I want to read this. Bio, bio warfare. Oh There's God. a great book by a guy named Ken Alibek. And Ken was a Russian scientist or a Soviet Union scientist. He defected to the United States 
And he was one of the leaders of their biowarfare program back during the Cold War. And he wrote this book called Biohazard. And, you know, with your level of anxiety, you probably shouldn't read Just it. Just terrify me. It'd probably keep you up all night. Yeah. Um, but I tell you, if anyone, you know, is out there is interested, it's a great book about kind of that period of time. And it crosses over into this world of infectious disease. Man. People like me, you know, just love that stuff. Yeah, you, you read that. Um, what's the book about dinosaurs you were trying to get me to read? Yeah, I already forgot the title. It's a great I, book. I want to read that one. You know, the reason I like those books is because they give you a perception of time. You know, our time on this earth is so small. And when you read these books and they're about the dinosaur periods and, and, and pre-Cambian periods, millions and millions and millions of years ago, it just kind of, you can't wrap your mind around it. How it's arrogant crazy. are we? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I always tell you about the aliens thing. Yeah. Like, how arrogant are you to think that we're the only ones here? Yeah, I'm an arrogant person. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Real quick, why, why are you so candid and so positive that there's no such thing as aliens? So, I think it's how you phrase the question, right? Yeah. If the question is, there's no such thing as aliens that have been to Earth... I, I'm a scientist. There's no evidence that that's ever happened. What do you? What about all those YouTube videos? Yeah, like I said, there's no. <laughs> like I said, there's no evidence. Like, just like, just you like. You ever heard of Project Blue Book? Just like the pictures of Nessie. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I think scientists are skeptics by nature, so we look for proof. So okay, no, but, but real quick, if your question is, do I think there's no aliens anywhere ever? I mean, I, I couldn't say that, right? The, 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 I mean, the universe, the universe is, is... There's so much we've never seen. There's, it's so big. And, you know, our concept of what life may be may not be the same somewhere else. But. Okay, pictures of Nessie. Like, for real, do you think, as a guy who studies animals and all this stuff, right? Right. Like, is there a possibility that there's these, like, just weird species out there that have just not been discovered that people are think that they're seeing these, like, monsters? You know what I'm saying? Like the Loch Ness Monster or something like that. Like, you know, because people will claim like, oh, we, we saw Sasquatch or, or whatever. Like, do you think like you were talking about the rainforest? Like, I mean, how, like, how much have we not like explored yet? Because we're talking about these viruses, right? And they're, yeah. they're evolving all the time. And like, so is there, is there stuff like that that we need to not necessarily be keep an eye out for? But like, is it possible? Yeah. So there's two parts to your question. The first part, does that scenario exist? Are we still discovering things, new species. The answer to that is absolutely yes. All right, I'm half a glass of bourbon in now, everybody, so it's going to get weird. Right. So the answer <laughs> to that question is yes. I mean, we're scientists are always discovering um, primarily, you know, new insects or new fish in the bottom of the ocean, things like that. The second part of your question, could, could those be the explanation for monsters? Um, <laughs> no, not necessarily. I'm not even <laughs> claiming that the monsters are real. I'm saying, like, do people think that they're seeing one thing and really, like, well, there's a pretty good explanation for it. It could be. There could you know, be. It's a descendant of. Um, there could be. You know, there are also weird things that happen in animal reproduction. You know, any any farmer out there who raises livestock has probably seen some calves that yeah. came out pretty weird looking, right? And so then, if that happens out in nature and someone sees some weird looking, you know, deer or something. And then all of a sudden it's, it's some yeah. crazy monster, right? When maybe there was just a, an explanation that w of why it was there. Okay. We were going to hit on this real quick. The social media aspect of all this pros so, and cons of this COVID-19. Yeah. You go first. What, I mean, okay, you live in this world. What do you, what do you think? This is what I see. The cons are the 
the ability to spread misinformation. The this is man-made. I saw one out there today that Obama created this to so Trump would lose. Okay. Um like that for the most like those are the the Obama thing's different R- ridiculous. Who defines what misinformation is? <sighs> Fake news. I mean it's it's very real. Like I I hate using that term as a journalist because it gets tossed around way too much. And most right. people don't really like just because you don't agree with something doesn't mean it's fake news. Right. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, a lot of people, I think like with the, the flu thing that we talk, Oh, people die from the flu all the time. Well, I, like I think that there's a danger of enough people reading that from Joe across the street to not take the coronavirus threat seriously enough. So I think that's the dangerous part. Agree. I think the good part is, man, how much... So I compared it to the Spanish flu outbreak in 1918 in Philadelphia, right? And they had... Have you read about this parade? Uh, Washington Post did a great piece on it oh, no, earlier this week. I'll send it to you. On their, the Spanish flu outbreak, and there's all these symptoms, but they go along and have their like big annual parade anyways, where... I mean, basically tens of thousands of people they found were infected because they went ahead and had this parade. And I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, in 1918, if people have Twitter, Facebook, newspapers are online. Right. And we can get that information out sooner. Like, how long would it take to get the social distancing thing going in our country right now if we didn't have this technology? Right. So I think it's a big pro when it comes to that. I agree. I agree. And so um, I agree with the negatives that you just described. You know, there is misinformation. Um I will say that sometimes it's hard to know what misinformation is. I mean, I think if it's egregious, you know, it's probably obvious, but there, there are people who don't see it or believe it. And, and somehow even in the world of science, you know, opinion often comes into the equation. And as a scientist, sometimes that's hard to deal with. I mean, science isn't perfect. You know, we do work in the world of hypothesis and theories, um, but there's not a lot of opinion per yeah. se. Um, so that's hard. I think the good pot parts that I saw, um, two examples, and the first one relates to what you just said, flattening the curve has become a household name in like a week, right? You know, a few of the major publications put out some charts on Twitter and they were retweeted all over. and, And that has become, I think a little bit of a rallying call, right? Sometimes people need, yeah, there's like hashtags and yeah, all that and, stuff. And, and what's the reason I have to do what I'm being asked to do? Well, this chart is the reason kind of, and I, I think that's a positive. Um, another positive that I think, um, and I know you've seen this too, man, people are reaching out to help other people. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, you know, whether it's friends, um, businesses, you know, we, we have friends and businesses that are going to be impacted by this and, and that's the really crappy side. But man, I, I've seen the Facebook and the Twitter and things of people rallying together to help others get groceries, childcare, things like that. So I think I think there's really a positive there as well. One of the big negatives to this uh, goes into another hobby of ours, which is um, wealth building and investing. And the stock market is absolutely tanked. Man, it has been <laughs> like brutal. The Dow's down like I, like almost seven thousand points off of its high. The S and P's down more than like thirty percent, I think, after today. And Matt and I, like, when we do hang out, 
this is probably what we talk about the most, right? Other than Iowa State and yeah, our daughters. I, I'd say we actually don't talk about Iowa State a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's probably life and life and investing in our vacations. In our vacations. We like to go to Florida That's together. Right. Um, so the f- disclaimer, we're not financial professionals. We're not claiming to be. But we we have similar investing like philosophies, but then we there's kind of a fork in the road with how we do it. And Matt and I, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but we're both big believers and you can do a lot of this yourself. We are. Yeah. And, and we do. And we do. And we, sh- we, should, we should talk about that. I, I, I've heard you say some things about <laughs> financial advisors. I don't think they're all crooks. I, I'm not. We should talk about that. So, and you and I have had this decision. So, and this will kind of feed into the story. There was a point where I um, was lucky enough to have a considerable amount of money to, to jump into the market kind of full bore. And I was kind of naive at that point. And so I did start talking to some financial advisors mm-hmm. and um, very smart people, you know, way more knowledge about this stuff a lot than I do into the specifics and the details. And I got stuck on the same thing you did, the the fee structure. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know that there's a lot of things you can control in investing. I mean, you may think you can, but one thing you can control is your costs, right? And so I was kind of like, I was turned off by the kind of the assets under management percentage structure and the commission thing. And so I decided, you know what? I'm going to just sit on the sidelines for six months, do nothing and read everything I can read. And it was a blast. Over over the course of, like, let's say 30 years, that money's in the market. You'll have saved hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars because of that. Yeah. The part that I don't like, here's the one part that, that gets me. And I don't think enough people are educated about it. Is a lot of these places will say like, okay, we're going to charge you. Um, it, you're, it's a, it's a 1%. That's usually the starting point of whatever your portfolio is. Yep. Well, um, the S and P 500, since it's start is averaged, what? 6% return per year. It's not guaranteed. Right. Some years are up. So last year was up like 30%. It's already lost it all this year. Right. So it, but if you add that 6% compound it over time with your dividends, that 1%, grows with it. Right. And that 1% like is not much in year five, but in year 30, when you take that 1% and you add it up and you compound it and stuff like it, uh, when you buy a car, let's say you have to borrow money to buy a car. Like it should say, if you, if you pay the minimum on your 6% interest rate, I hope you're not paying that, but if you do um, towards the end, like this is what the, ultimate. So like you're buying the car for $20,000, but it's really going to cost you $36,000 with the interest, right? Right. They don't show you that. And it's not possible for them to do it, but I don't think, I think enough humans, this, oh, 1%, that's nothing. I still get to keep 99% of it. You're not factoring in the growth of that account and the compounding of it throughout the whole thing. And what I want to lead you into, because this is where, and you've taught me a lot in this, like, I mean, study after study after study, if you just play the market, you're probably going to beat the stock pickers every time and you don't have to give up that percentage. I think so. And that's where 
so I'm sure we'll have some listeners that'll be aware of Jack Bogle. Jack Bogle was the yes. founder of Vanguard and people will probably hear me say enough things over the next few minutes to realize that um, I spent a lot of time on the Bogleheads You're website. a disciple. I am. And, you know, I deviate in areas, but that's kind of my core foundation. So when I was looking early on about, okay, I want to move this money into the market, but I'm going to do it really simply. And I'm going to do it in basically passive index funds and like a three fund portfolio. And that's it. And if I was going to do that, did I need a financial advisor to do that for me? And did it make sense that, you know, if I was investing $1,000 versus $10,000, my cost would be 10 times higher to that person to do the same thing. So I was turned off by the fee structure, but I want, I want to temper this a little bit. Um, you and I both know people in that industry and they're smart people. Yeah. And financial advisors, um, they know more about this than I do once you get into active investing and things like that. A lot of them with taxes and stuff too. That Ta- a lot of people how don't How to understand. handle taxes. And so financial advisors have a role. You know, if you're someone who just doesn't want to learn on your own. Yeah. If you're someone who, um, you know, needs maybe that emotional support and what better time right now in a, in a market crash to have someone else kind of, this is what I really want to get keeping into. the finger off the button. I mean, I think the emotional support is there. So I'm not, I would not bash financial advisors. I just don't like the fee structure. You know, I, I pay professionals to help me. I have a tax preparer and accountant. I pay him. Yeah, I do too, by the way, but he doesn't change what he bills me based on how much money yeah, it's I a made flat fee. It's a flat fee. So, um, there are financial advisors out there that are, that are hourly based, you know, they're not all assets under management. You can find financial advisors out there that will bill you by the hour or whatever. Um, so, and I, you know, you'll probably see that market start to grow. I I think it will. And I think because of technology has a lot to do with it. That's kind of where I got started. It it started off with me, man. Like when this all kind of clicked for me. I'm a big Apple guy. Everything I have is Apple. Sure. I'm reading um, Mac Rumors or whatever the website was. It's a sister website of Cyclone Fanatic, if you didn't know. Nice. Same people build it and everything, so I'm familiar with it because of that. And I'm reading about Apple. This is like six, seven years ago, and I'm reading about Apple wanting to get into, like, cars down the road and make their own TVs and... You know, yep. it seemed at the time very futuristic and all this. And I'm like, man, that's a really, so at this time, I, I mean, I had never looked at a stock chart in my life, right? But I opened up a Schwab account and I said, I want to buy some Apple. And that's when I'm like, oh, and I called Carper. Yep. Who's really good with this stuff. And he's like, you should start a Roth IRA. And I didn't know what that was, but I started it at the time. And you guys can research that another show. Um, I bought Apple at the time for like $89. And then I just sat and I didn't look at it for like months and Apple was at like, you know, over $300 just a couple of weeks ago before the stock market tanked. And I watched it grow and I was like, wow, well, this is fun. Now, not every stock you buy is going to have the success that Apple, I happened to buy it when it was getting killed. Like, so I, I, it was dumb luck that I jumped in on it at the time, but I got very interested in this. So I started reading the books and I, I really kind of met you right. at that time too. And we, I, I don't know, I've really grown to this for now. It is my hobby. Like at night, like I'm not reading about right. 
sports. I'm reading charts. I'm reading. I love it. Count, like, uh, countless days do I wake up in the morning to late night texts <laughs> from Chris with like ticker symbols. Yeah. I'm like, oh, you got to check out this fund. And hey, we had some fun, right? WWE and we can- had a good run with WWE canopy and some other things. Yep. We, we, we got in early and had some fun and yep. wrote them together. And, and that's, that's, what's fun. Like, um, but I also think that it's important, like, cause we, we talk about that and I think a lot of people can be like, oh, well, let's, let's just go take $10,000 and buy individual stocks. Right. Probably not the best approach for most people. Right. I, I think, you know, there's a lot of philosophies when it comes to investing and I kind of tipped my hand that I'm kind of the, the passive That's for the most really part. boring. I am, I guess, <laughs> but, but he'll also probably beat me, but you know, I'm also kind of data driven and the data is kind of on my side. Right. So it's boring and successful at the same time. But, um, I think, you know, some of it depends where you are in your life. Right. You know, when I was a 20 some year old kid, maybe with my first job, you know, like you heard, all my credentials are in science, right? I didn't have any finance training you know, I maybe took accounting 284 at Iowa State, maybe. Um, so I was like, okay, I know it's good to invest, but but what do I buy, you know? And, you know, my advice to my past self would be get a 401k wherever you are, um, save and invest in yourself first when you're young because the time compounding interest value of money is something you can never get back. Nope. At, at a minimum, invest enough to get the match. I mean, I know all this stuff is obvious, right? But, and and pick a, a life cycle index fund. You know, pick a single fund that kind of rebalances for you and then the, that- Like in those for- Target date retirement yeah, funds, right? It's like if you think you're going to retire in 2055. Yeah, right? yeah. and you you know you pick one that's way out there, 2070, and it's you know 90% stocks and 10% bonds, and it rebalances for you. I think that's the way to start. And then as you gain more knowledge, you become more sophisticated. Maybe you have more dollars, then you you start to look at other options. Okay, so I wanted to hand, I wanted to take care of what's going on right now, which is a officially a bear market, right? Uh, this is as bad as we've ever seen as far as a drop in a period of time. Absolutely. Now, it's very natural for people to be scared to death when you look at your retirement and, and all that stuff. I have been trained in my mind now to look at this as an opportunity. Right. And I say that with the utmost sensitivity because some people have lost their jobs. And this is anything but an opportunity. This is like financial hell for them. So I, I say that. Totally agree. Like, and I, I wish this was not the case. Right. But I can tell you and, and all of our listeners today, I've never been more active when it comes to buying than I have been in the last four to five days. And the reason being that is I, I look at this and I think there's a couple of reasons why it's gone down as fast as it has. And we can get into that. I look at this as the opportunity of a lifetime for a guy at the age of 35. If you can, you you don't want to sell right now. You want to accumulate. You definitely do not want to sell. Do not sell. Definitely. And like that is, um, people are scared to death and I understand it. I was talking to my dad today. Like he's, you know, retired. Like it's scary when you're older and all that stuff. Absolutely. But you, you, you've given me this line. You only lose it if you sell it. That's right. And I think that's really, like, if I could just get that across to anybody who's listening to this right now, that's what it would be. 
But I think one of the things I wanted to touch on with you is this is where we differ. Yes, we do. I look at what's going on right now. And I do, I put in the research to individual stocks. You don't really do a lot of that. I mean, you will, you'll dabble in it, but it's not, you don't. It's a really small piece of my investing. I, I think so many people are index investing right now, like what you're talking about. Right. Which is, I think that's why we see the significant drops though today. Like, so the S and P 500 dropped like 10% today. It's not all because Starbucks, right? Like whatever airline in there is, you know, you, you own all of those stocks, right? So I think right, if you're ever going to stock pick, it's in a market like right now where you find these companies that are being hammered by these index losses and you can get in on that. That's one that I bought a lot of today. Starbucks is trading at like $50. That's insane. Starbucks isn't going anywhere. You know, it's, it's, it, we're Matt, like, we'll just buy these giant funds. And I do too, for, by the way, I think you need to have like, that should be the absolute core of your portfolio. I think it's pretty healthy to have whatever percent you feel comfortable with where you can dabble around and things like this, as long as you're doing the homework. So I don't, I don't disagree with your premise. Right. And I think, I think the difference is I'm, I, I think the other thing is once you become an investor, you, one of the first things you should do is you should develop some goals. You should develop a plan. Yeah. Don't free will. And again, I'm sounding, again, I'm sounding like a bogle head person because this is really. But you are. You should have a plan. I'm more of a Kramer head. And you stick to your plan regardless of what's going on around you. Yeah. And so I've bought into that. And, you know, there are a few reasons. One, you know, you can go out there and you can find threads um, on message boards and things of people you know, they're doing put options and margin calls and, and shorting stocks. I think stocks. we have one of those on Cyclone Fanatic. Yeah, I, I've seen that one before. And, you know, hats off to those people. If the people in those thread, you know, can make money doing that, you know, I don't begrudge them at all. That's great. I personally don't feel like I have the knowledge to do that. So for me, I feel like I would just be kind of gambling. And... <laughs> And I guess investing, well, investing is kind of gambling. It, it is. I mean, in general. It's, it's gambling for... Gambling for adults, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and it kind of deviates from my plan. So you know that I do some of it, right? You know that I buy some single stocks, but it's very minute. It, it's, you know, 1% or 2% of my total portfolio. So it's almost just like play, you know, I'm, I'm doing it because you and I enjoy doing it together. Yeah. You know, I, I told you that when, um, Virgin Galactic <laughs> yeah, had their IP, yeah. I, I, I think I texted you guys or I, I went on our, our chat board and I said, you know, FYI, I'm buying Virgin Galactic. It might tank, but I don't care because it's <laughs> going to be fun as hell to watch. Right. You know, it's cool to invest in the, the thought of maybe going to Mars or something, you know, just crazy. That's not a good reason to invest really. No. And you got to be careful with that. Like I've, I've absolutely gotten killed on, I'll give you some of these examples. Uh, one of the first ones I've ever got just take a bath in was Under Armour. Absolutely. I, I still, that. I still own it. I'm, I'm not selling that. Gonna I'm go not to selling gra- that. Gonna go to the grave. Son of it. a bitch. I'm keeping <laughs> Under Armour until, until they turn this thing around. Um, this just happened to me, and I did this for the same reason that you bought Virgin Galactia uh, when Barstool was bought out by 
pin national gaming, which is a, I bought like 25 shares, which it was trading for like 30 bucks or 25 bucks or whatever. It's down to like four right now because all the casinos are shut down. Wow. Right. Yeah. Right. So you like, you, you run that risk when you have an index, like it's a lot less risky than that. My only thing, I, I just wanted to get it through to everybody. We can talk. It, this is not like me and Matt telling you this. This is do not sell your, do not sell off right now. That is the absolute worst thing you can do. And if you're a guy or a gal and you have money lying around and you're employed and don't, don't pull it out of your emergency fund or anything like that. If you're ever thinking about like, Oh, I need to get started investing. Do it now. Like I'm, I'm telling you, and it's so easy now. So like, if I could give anybody advice, you, you kind of gave yours to your future self. It's so easy now with Robinhood. Acorns to me is the best tool for any person who knows that they need to get into the market, but they they don't know how to do it. And I think you would agree with me. So it's a it's an app. You link it to your bank account. Right. It puts your spare change into Vanguard funds, which that's Matt's deal. Yep. So it's like zero fees and it builds over time and it, it's constantly dollar cost averaging for you. So you're not buying it at an all time high. You're not buying it at all time low. I mean, I use mine as like a savings account. Yep. It's basically how I do it. And I don't even realize that the money's going in it's there. It's a great way to do it. Then there's a thing I love. I haven't got you on it yet, but I think you should. It's called Fundrise. If you want to give into like private real estate, I've gotten really into that. It's not connected to the stock market. So while all my stocks are completely tanking right now, I'm looking at my fundraise account and it continues to go up. Um, you know, Robinhood has really changed the game for everybody. So now the guys like TD Ameritrade and Schwab can't charge you for commissions and stuff like that. I think that if you're a millennial out there, like it's a great time to, to get started. It is. You know, I think... I was, so in 2008, um, you know, I was just a couple of years out of college and, and not really in the same position I'm in now. And I remember sitting on a golf course vividly, um, talking to a buddy of mine and looking at, at some of the big bank stocks, you know, Wells Fargo and, mm -hmm. and Principal Financial Group, just tank, right? Yeah. And I remember thinking, man, we should, we should really buy some of this stock right now. It's like dollars, you know, it's so cheap. And didn't do it, you know, didn't do it. And, um, I didn't lose any money by, I guess, by not buying it, but I, I, well, I guess I did, you know, I lost a lot of potential gains of money that I would have bought. And, uh, and so here I am again, you know, 12 years later in the same situation, the market's tanking. Um, the company I told you about right when we first started, I'll just say it. I think <laughs> like one that really intrigues me is Boeing. Boeing, right. I mean, it's this mammoth company. There's only two companies in the world that make that do this. Uh, I I just don't see how it fails. It's going to get bailed out. This is a good example, though, of how people like you and me pick stocks, right? <laughs> I don't think either one of us is the person who can go pull financial sheets and, and look at all the in-depth numbers yeah. and do that quantitative analysis, right? You and I are more kind of qualitative, yeah. you know, what's society doing, you know, <laughs> Absolutely. how might politics impact different sectors and try to get out in front of that curve, you know, and is that smart? I don't know. We'll probably <laughs> hit <laughs> some winners and the, hit some losers. The right? two that I'm on right now, actually there's three. Um, there's the alternative energy one, the clean energy stuff. Like I just, and it, it has, I've, I've lost money on it so far. Right. The Trump presidency has not been good to this sector. Yeah. 
But like in in twenty years, if I hold on to these, like, are we not going to be doing more solar and wind? One would think, but you know, at the same time, something could come out in that time frame that super yeah. that supersedes it. Uh, the other is five G. It's like I just think that's going to like change our world. I think it will too. So the question is, is that already priced into those stocks or not? Are we buying the news lines? Yeah. You know, are we buying late? I read a book one time called Quants, and it was about these quantitative supercomputer geniuses and these supercomputers that process all this data and they're, they're doing all these transactions and trades, right? And we have no chance against that. When it, <laughs> I mean, we really don't, no, right? Absolutely not. Uh, and it, it just blows you away when you start thinking about here I am, you know, on my smartphone while I'm going to the bathroom <laughs> trying to buy a stock, you know, and it's I like- do it all the time. Yeah, and it's like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> the other one for me is AI. Yeah. Like, I just think that- I don't, and I, I was in my cannabis phase for a really long time. I still am. I haven't sold any of those. I'm holding those for the next 30 years because I think that they've tanked on me. That's a horrible sector to be involved in right now. But man, it was good for 12 oh. months or so. Yeah. And if you, you know, sold at the right, that, do you remember the stock Tilray? I do. Do you remember? Yeah. We were dabbling around in that. Absolutely. I sold that thing in the hundreds and it, it today dropped below $4. That's crazy. That thing was, and that's not very long ago, but everybody was just, it was right before the election because everybody's like, oh, if Hillary gets him, right. the Democrats are going to make marijuana legal. And yeah, right. so you're and, right. And there like, was a lot of buying on the hype. I mean, there was a absolutely. lot of hype building that up and, and people, you know, a lot of times the average investor comes in late, right? Yeah. And they buy it at the high. Because they see it on Yahoo Finance. And, and they, someone, yeah. you know, yeah. someone else is selling it at the high. So I, th I think just real quick on the, what am I doing? Yeah. Are you doing anything different now? Or are you just... Uh, just a couple of things. So one, um, I have a taxable account that I invest into similar. I know you do as well. Yeah. And so in that account, I'm doing some tax loss harvesting. So anyone um, who has a taxable account should be aware of this, that if you have an investment that goes into the red, um, you can do what's called tax loss harvesting. And I, I encourage you to go to go read about it. It, it doesn't really, you're just kind of deferring the taxes to the future, I think, basically, which, yeah. you know, you expect that anything you can defer is good when it comes to tax. Um, so I've done some of that. And then I've done rebalancing. And so for a passive investor, the way you take advantage of a down market is, okay, well, I have my plan. Let's just say I want to have 80% equities and 20% bonds or cash. Well, all of a sudden the market crashes and now all of a sudden my 80% target drops, right? It's less of the portfolio than I want it to be. So I call it rebalancing, but it really means is money that I would have been putting in in that 80-20 split are now going 100% into equities. Mm -hmm. So I'm buying more equities during the down period but I'm doing it kind of with cash that I'm investing monthly anyway. So, so one thing I did, um, like just for instance, on my acorns. So I, the roundups is, is what you can do. And basically what that does is let's say you, let's say you, you go to a coffee shop and you buy a cup of coffee for a dollar 50. It'll take whatever you round up, like whatever you set it at. So I say to the next dollar amount. So it takes that 50 cents and it puts it into the stock market yep. to whatever funds I have it allocated to. So I've, I have that tripled right now because of the bear market, because I just, instead of 50 cents, it's a buck 50 mm -hmm. that goes into it. That's one thing I'm doing. Um, 
And I've just, like I said, I've. And that's a great thing to do. I mean, you're kind of doing that in real time. I think a lot of times you hear people say, well, I've got cash sitting on the side waiting for this event. And that's kind of weird for someone like me who has a plan because I don't ever have cash just sitting there not doing something. It's typically invested on a plan. Um, But for the people that do, and, you know, I'm not a market timer, but I know some people maybe pulled out and now they're waiting to get back in, you know, they're taking a risk, but. um, Well, you're like all the data says time in the market's always more valuable than timing the market, right? Exactly. So sometimes that argument is used, you know, sometimes I think a common question, sometimes people answer as well. I just got this $5,000 bonus, for example, should I put it all in right now or should I dollar cost average over the next 12 months? And I think the kind of emotional side of that says, well, dollar cost averaging is more, is smarter, right? That way I just kind of space it out. But in reality, if you're young and you've got 30 or 40 years in the market, the data would show just get it all in as yeah. soon as you can. Any fluctuations in the next 12 months is going to be a blip compared to your horizon. Anyway. But if you're like a stock picker, then like, which I don't consider myself one, but like if you're a guy who does this professionally or something, right? And you're you're use Starbucks as an example, and you're keeping an eye on that. Maybe it's smarter for that guy to space it out. But that's not really what we're yeah. And that's about a whole other world. I mean, yeah. if, if some of our <laughs> listeners are in that world, they're they're it's probably listening to us and thinking that we're hillbillies because <laughs> we're, we're 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 not we're not there. Okay, um, before we wrap it up, do you have any good books you recommend? Um, let me think. So, I got a couple here. Okay, you go ahead. You, you think about yours. The, this one's a life changer for me. Unshakable. Yeah. Tony Robbins wrote it. It is, it basically just pulls the curtain on the financial It's industry. interesting because I, I don't think Tony Robbins would come to my mind. It's really good. It, what he, but he interviews experts okay. and stuff. It's really, it's a psychology book. It's a money psychology book. This is why, like right now in this bear market, why I'm spending hours a day studying this stuff because I just, I, I truly view this as like a opportunity of a lifetime. And then I think the best one that I've read, that's just like a really good book for beginners, the millionaire next door. When was this thing published? That's a classic. Yeah. This thing was published. I mean, in the eighties, it's, it's really old. Um, but the concepts are the same. It's, it's very much a Warren Buffett. Um, you know, I have a guy who I'm pretty good friends with now at 96 is when this came out. Um, Chris, uh, Chris Clover, he's probably listening to me, uh, probably listening to this, but he, he swears by just buying VTI and Berkshire Hathaway. Like that's the only thing he puts his money into. And he's just a Buffett disciple. And like this millionaire next door, I mean, it's, it's really good on like living frugally and not above your means and, you know, yeah, how to get started. And the Ramsey too, I think Ramsey's book, the Total Money Makeover it was the first financial book I ever read. I feel like it was geared towards people who really are in a lot of debt, where, need where, help getting out. Where do you come down? I, I think one of the common questions that you, that we've wrangled with, and a lot of younger people do, how do you make that decision on whether to pay debt versus invest? Well, a lot of it is, is the rate. The rate of the debt? Yeah, that's the biggest thing. So if it's at me. a certain percent that well, you think you can beat in the market? Correct. Like, I, I mean... If you have an interest rate, let's say of, um, I just refinanced my house. It's like 3.5 now or whatever. Um, like, does it make more sense to aggressively 
pay that off and not get anything into the market if I think the market's going to give me 6% a year? No. You know, it's, it's, it's math. But then there's the Ramsey approach where if you get out of that debt, then you can put more money into the market. I'd rather get my compounding going when I'm young. Right. I, I don't know. What about you? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think I'm not sure there's a perfect answer to that question. This question gets asked all the time if you read online forums and things. And um, you're right. The math number is usually, hey, invest it. You know, if you've got a mortgage at, at There's three, good and bad 3%, debt. 3%, right. Um, but then conversely, you know, there's an emotional side to having debt. And sometimes there's an emotional high to get, getting rid of debt. And so, you know, your experience may vary on how you answer that question. Yeah, I think too, like if you buy a car, if you buy a car you don't need, right? And you, with a 7% loan, right? To me, that debt is different than paying off your student loans, right? Yeah. Or paying off like your mortgage, right? I agree. Um, for my book, I think my book is probably considered a classic as well. Um, a random walk down wall street. And there's a couple updated versions and uh, it's been a while since I've read it. I probably should go back and read it again. It, it's, um, it's kind of technical. There are technical pieces of it. Um, but there's also some history, you know, you, you'll hear about the, the tulip thing back in the 17th century. We should talk about sometime. It's, it's a fascinating situation, um, about how tulips became super valuable and, People started really? buying them and all like of a sudden, toilet paper today. All, yeah, like all of a sudden the price of tulips went up and then everyone just lost it, right? Because really they were just tulips at the end of the day. It's basically Bitcoin. Yeah. It's like this thing in the air. <laughs> a little bit. Um, but there's a great chapter that I remember in Random Walk Down Wall Street that's about um that's about behavioral finance. And you know, it hits on topics like overconfidence. Oh yeah, that's me. It hits on <laughs> topics like biased perspectives herd mentality, um, which is the cannabis thing we just saw trading. And that one chapter, I think probably shaped me more as an investor than anything, because I understood the concepts and then I became cognizant. If I saw myself, if I saw myself, um, that's, that's Cammy. Cammy joined us. Cammy. What do you, what do you need Cammy? I don't know what she's talking about, but yeah. Oh, I don't know where your unicorn is. I'm sorry. So I think, but I think, you know, that, that there's think, a lot of technical stuff in there, but man, that behavioral chapter really, really resonated with me. Okay. And, and what's then, that? What's it called? It's called a random walk down wall street. Okay. Um, it's a, it's a good book. Um, and then, you know, I've, I've mentioned Boggleheads. I think that's a good starting that's point. It's a good forum. Even to, if you don't, you know, if you think that passive is, is kind of weak, um, it's kind of funny because we talk about risk tolerance, right? And usually the risk tolerance is the percent equities versus the percent bonds or cash. So from that perspective, I would be considered a pretty high risk portfolio, yeah. but yet I'm still a passive investor just in index funds. And I think um, I would be extreme high risk. I don't know if it, it's funny. Too, I don't know if I own a bond. Are you aware of the, the financial independence, retire early, the fire movement? You've t- only what you've told me. It's interesting because you see a lot of young folks. Uh, it's been really popular recently. People in their 30s and 40s retiring early. That's going to be interesting to watch. You know, a lot of those people haven't experienced a bear market. Yeah. And I think it's easy to say your risk tolerance is really high when you've only seen the market going like this. Well, I think too, like for a guy, um, guys our age, 
I have a friend who I'm thinking about right now who, like, we're scarred from 2008. Yeah. There were a lot of people our age who we just remember those headlines and right. mom and dad at the kitchen table and, like, right. how horrible that got where the stock market scared the hell out of us. Right. Which is a shame because a lot of us would have been joining the working force at that time. And if we would have put money in in 2008, which is a similar situation to right now. Right the gains you would have had long-term are astronomical. Right. That's why, like, to me, like, I'm glad I lived through that. And I'm glad that I kind of came, came to my senses when I did because I, I feel like I've kind of had the best of both worlds. So I ho- hopefully this doesn't last that long. You know, if you're the government's doing a lot of stimulus stuff. I mean, the markets haven't really responded to it yet. They are. And I think I think it's natural for be, for to have the mindset of, well, maybe this time is different. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I know from past bear markets that there's always been a recovery and that it's smart, but what if this time is different? And, you know, I think there's a saying out there that says every bull market is exactly the same and every bear market is different. And this is another one. Um, and man, if it doesn't recover, we've got all sorts of other problems <laughs> yeah. anyway. Right? I, mean, so, I think we're going to have more problems than right. just what our 401ks have. Right. The, um, friend says this a lot. The stock market was built to go up. That's right. And if it if that wasn't the case, then we wouldn't have had that press conference earlier this week where they're dumping trillions of dollars into our they're gonna literally be sending us checks. They want the stock market to go up, especially this president. <laughs> you know, yeah. maybe no president in American history has been as locked into the stock market as Donald Trump. It's a point of emphasis and I and I, I guess I don't it's not always a political one, right? I mean the stock market is important no, for prosperity and for small business owners and, and everybody. So uh, it makes sense that if it's for uh you know, I really feel for colleagues that have small vet clinics oh, or small brutal. restaurants and bars. And, I'll tell you right now, Cyclone and, Fanatic. Yeah. I mean, I mean nobody's advertising. Nobody's going to advertise. right? And I get it. Right. Like, it's, it is brutal. Right. Like, if you're a bar right now and you can't, you literally can't have your doors open, how do you, right? How do you do anything? It's, it's going to touch everybody. And, and eventually some of us, you know, may have people in our families or friend circles that get sick. So we're going to have to deal with that, you know? We're not too far from planting season. Yeah. You know, we have uh, all of our friends are farmers here in Iowa and, and my family. You know, you think my dad's going to quarantine when it's time to start planting? No chance. No. Well, I just, they're not right now. They're out with livestock. You don't have they're, a choice, right? I mean, you got, you, that's your life. That's your job. You keep going. So thanks, man. This has been so fun. So when we we'll do, have to do it again, when we do the aliens thing, <laughs> don't just invite someone who's going to agree with you. Include me, so you have a scientist. No, be like, we will. What about ghosts? Yeah, let's do that too. You want to do the ghost one with me? Total BS as you well. You could just co-host the podcast. Total with me BS from, as well. So that see that is so ridiculous. Like the the fact this is what this is what bugs me about you scientists. Okay, <laughs> put us all like, in the same. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, we need proof. Well. Like, can you prove that it didn't happen on that YouTube video? <laughs> Let's save this, right? This this is another hour. This is a whole another hour, easily. Okay. Deal. It's been uh, a lot of fun, though. Yeah. Thanks, buddy. All right. Appreciate it. See you, man.